0: Aren't you glad that you can sing about God's faithfulness, a God who is faithful to his word? And, and what it would always just convicts me or, or really just amazes me when I sing of God's faithfulness, when I consider God's faithfulness, there, I realize that there's nothing in me that demands God's faithfulness but it is only because he is holy, because he is just, because he is loving, he is faithful to what he says. Nothing in me, nothing in me, but he is faithful and we can sing it and we can rejoice in it. And I hope that, that this morning that as we were reminded of God's faithfulness, that you could think back to your week or maybe to this morning or just this season of life, that you have really two options, right? The storms are going to come, we say, But you're going to be tossed to and fro unless you are anchored in Christ. So what is it going to be? The storms are going to come. You either got an anchor or you don't. Now, last week I was out, Adam Kazai, one of our elders, he came in and preached Romans um, 4, 9 through 12. And this is continuing this illustration this illustration of Abraham, where, where Paul is using Abraham as the supreme illustration of justification by faith alone. A central doctrine, central to the Christian faith. Uh, my wife, Ariel and I, and our two boys, we were at the beach last week. And um, I had a conversation with a, a Catholic guy. And, and, you know, you could hear the exhaustion in tradition, just going through these ceremonial rites that promise grace, that promise salvation, that promise regeneration and justification and all of the things through these, like, achievements. We said the grace or that justification, right, this God's declaration or declaring a sinner righteous is received, it's not achieved. Amen? justification is received it's not achieved and when you when you talk to people who are in this works based righteousness system you can hear the frustration you could hear the exhaustion you can hear the burden of maintaining this system and that's definitely what i experienced in uh, my conversation with this uh, this catholic and I say all of that, one, to just thank you for the, for the time off. I really appreciate that, and thank Adam for coming and sharing God's Word. I heard that he did really well, and I watched it on YouTube. Hey, here's a shout out. Gio, not here yet, um, but we're on YouTube now, and it looks really good, sounds really good. Thank you, Gio. Thank you, Adam. Thank you all. Justification by faith alone. This, he's continuing here. Paul is continuing here in Romans 4, and we're going to come to the end. We're going to read all the way to verse 25. I don't know if we're going to make it there yet, but just to, just to get us familiar or read. Um, I, don't, I don't know the word that I'm trying to think of, but just to get us familiar with the, the context, right? In the first eight verses of Romans 4, Paul taught us that, that Abraham was not justified by works, All right, do we remember that? Okay, then in verses 9 through 12, last week not saved through or not justified, declared righteous through circumcision. Now, nobody today would say, hey, a person is justified by circumcision, except for maybe uh, modern Jews. But many who sometimes call themselves Christian, some even who would call themselves evangelical, which is definitely uh, not the case, would say that, no, you're justified when you are baptized. You're justified when you're confirmed, or when you take your first communion, or whatever the case may be, it's, it's through these ceremonial rites, and Paul argues here that it's not through ceremonial right. Now here in verses 13 through 25, what we see is Paul wrapping it up. He's bringing this illustration to a conclusion. And what we see are two sections held together by that word promise. If you're already there, you should see it. You'll see it about five times in all of these verses. So we see that Abraham was not justified by works, not by ceremonial right, uh, ceremonial rights, and this promise it wasn't received. He he wasn't declared righteous through the law. Like none of this comes through the law. It is purely, solely by God's sovereign grace alone. That's it. And if we can celebrate that, if we can if we can let that just take hold of us, we will. I mean. Romans 4 will just, it'll be the catalyst for everything else in this letter. So we're going to go ahead and begin, but I want to pray uh, before we start, so bow with me. Father God, we are just so grateful, so grateful that we can sing of your faithfulness and that we can read of your faithfulness and that we have examples of your faithfulness, not just in Scripture, but in our own lives. Lord, we pray that as we read your word, that you would assure us of that truth, that for those who are in Christ here, that they would no longer be tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves, by every every doctrine, every every issue that comes along, but that they would be anchored in Christ, that they would rely solely on your grace and your faithfulness. And for those who are apart from Christ, God, we pray that you would draw them to salvation through faith, that you would convict them, that you would illuminate to them their desperate need for a Savior. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he, grew, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now just to to give us a, a road map, what we see In verses 13 through 15 is that the promise, God's promise to Abraham did not come through the law, right? The promise that God made to Abraham did not come through the law. And and here's just a a side note. After we finish this this morning, go, here's some homework, read Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, what you see is a, a, a really good parallel of what he's describing here with Abraham. Now, we're not going to read the entire thing this morning, but we will point back or point to Galatians 3 um, to just evidence some of these points, the, to show the consistency and really to, to expand on some of the points that Paul makes here in this really long passage. Now, a few key words for us to really focus on. Like I said, the, the word here that unites the two sections of this passage is promise. You see it five times. Five times. Promise. 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 All right, And the promise that God made to Abraham, it was embodied in God's covenant to Abraham that we see in Genesis 12, 15, 18, 22. And four significant factors from this promise emerge. Four factors. The first is that the promise involved a land. The promise involved a land. right? And this land, what's really interesting about it is that Abraham never possessed this land in his lifetime. It wasn't until five centuries later that Joshua led Israel in conquest of Canaan that Israel began to possess the land. Now, what is even more interesting is when you turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, we see that Abraham was looking not at this physical land, but at a spiritual land, at a, at a land in the future that, was, uh, that has foundations, eternal foundations, whose maker and builder is God. God. So the promise involved a land. The promise, it also involved a people. The promise involved a people who would be as numerous as the stars and could not be counted and numbered like the dust and the stars of the earth and the sky. Now, eventually, Abraham, would he would be the father of many nations. And, and so we see that the promise involved a land and a people. Amen? Third, the promise involved a blessing, Right? Of the entire world through Abraham's descendants. You will be a blessing to many nations, to all nations. And then, lastly and most importantly, the promise, it involved a redeemer. The promise involved a redeemer who would be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham through whom this salvation would come. And this is the most important because it is from this promised redeemer. That everything else falls into place. Right? Because if you don't have a promised Redeemer, then you can't be a blessing to all the nations. Right? But Christ, the Redeemer, he brings salvation, provides salvation to people of all nations, Jew and Gentile. Blessing all the nations. The, The people then who are in Christ become the people of God, numerous descendants. And then the land where Christ will rule and reign for eternity is that promised land whose maker and builder is God that Abraham looked forward to everything hinges on the the promised redeemer so those are the four uh, the four characteristics that emerge from this Promise. And we see this all throughout Abraham's uh, narrative. And so, obviously, we're not going to read all of them. But in essence, right the, the content of the promise, it was a gospel message. It was a gospel message, and it's hard to see. But luckily, in Galatians 3, 8, Paul writes this, "...and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "...in you shall all the nations be blessed." Right, so th- this is, in, in my mind, it's like, man, the gospel was preached to Abraham? How did that work? And we'll answer that. But Jesus, he told the unbelieving Jewish leaders of his day in John eight fifty six your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's not explained specifically, as specifically as we might like in scripture that Abraham foresaw the Messiah who would be born of one of his promised descendants right he it's not explained how Abraham saw this redeemer this promised redeemer or or how this blessing would necessarily unfold or be fulfilled but he believed God and through this promised Messiah promised redeemer Abraham would be the heir of the entire world so Abraham believed that gospel as, and even when God commanded him to sacrifice his son, his his uh, true son, his true heir, Isaac. Do you remember that? Right, we'd, we'd, it'd be hard. We know parents were, it's difficult to even fathom, but Abraham believed God so much that when he and Isaac went up there and he was going to offer Isaac, his son, as a sacrifice, which the Lord God commanded him to test him, he believed that the, Lord would provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Genesis 22:8 says. Now the writer of Hebrew or the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes this in Hebrews 11:17 through19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is mind blowing. We don't have time. We're, we're going to keep, keep rolling. We've got to get there. All right. Next thing offspring that you see in verse 13, it's singular, it's not plural. Offspring is singular, not plural. Paul wrote, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, and according to his letter to the Galatians, this offspring or seed is Christ, Galatians three sixteen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into his, into offspring's referring to many, but referring to one into your offspring who is Christ. This offspring, this ultimate, this this ultimate heir, is Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are one with. Christ and that makes you a co or joint heir with Christ that means that everything that God gives to the son belongs to everyone who is in Christ you are a child of God you better start acting like it walking around this world like a beggar you better start acting like you have been the the riches of God have been lavished on you stop talking to me about, about snapchat In the news, you are a child of God. And he has lavished you with everything that belongs to Christ. And you did nothing for it. All right, so then at the end of Galatians 3, Paul wrote this. And if you are Christ, if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to what? There it is again co-joint heirs according to the promise that he made with Abraham. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's spiritual descendant. You are, you are a, a part of this promise. You are a co-heir with Christ. Next thing, law. That word law in verse 13. Like his argument in Galatians 3, Paul focuses on Abraham's relationship to the law. There in Galatians 3, um, Paul, he focuses on chronology, or the timeline. And what we see in Galatians 3.17 is that the law came 430 years after Abraham. So there's no way that Abraham could have, like, that this promise could have come through the law since it came 430 years after. It's impossible. Impossible. But here... Paul, he, he's not focused on chronology or, or timeline. He's focused, he's speaking more principally, right? The promise did not come to people because they obeyed the law, but it is through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, what this means is that the law was never given for salvation, even to the Jews. I need you to hear that. The law, it was never given for salvation, even for the Jews, so is the law bad or is it purposeless? Or, yeah, purposeless? Absolutely not. And Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 7, and we're not going to punch into it too deeply today, but I want you to, again, read that too, some more homework. So Galatians 3, Romans 7, somebody write this down so we can keep track. But among the, the several purposes of the law, what the law does is it reveals God's holiness, amen? It reveals God's righteous standards, Amen? It reveals man's sin, and it reveals our inability to carry out or to obey the law perfectly, which should inevitably lead us to God in faith, right? So when I see the law, I see how holy God is. I see exactly what he expects of me and you and every person, and when we realize that we, that we can't Obey it perfectly. When we can't meet that standard, we should come to God in faith. The part, one of the purposes of the law, among many. But so what we need to understand then is that that the law that again it was never meant or intended for salvation. The only righteousness that God recognized, has ever recognized, is the righteousness of faith in him. And just like the righteousness that he has imparted or imputed through justification, it only comes by means of his own gracious provision. Now in verses 14 and 15, now we got a good little launch and we're going to start moving with some speed. Fourteen, and fifteen. They explain why Abraham and those who came after him have never inherited God's promise through the law. So in verse fourteen, he says this: For if it, uh, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Adherents of the law. Who does that describe? Jew or Gentile? Jew. There we go. These are people who, who are trying to obtain the inheritance, who are, who are trying to be justified or declared righteous, receive eternal life, to be heirs of the promise through their obedience to the law. And what, if, if the promise, if it was inherited through obedience to the law, this is what Paul points out, that faith is null or it has no value and the promise is void. It's worthless. If you could earn it through your obedience, then faith in the promise it's null and void because it could never happen. Look at what Paul says, Galatians three ten: For all who rely on works of the law—that is, seek to justify themselves on the basis of keeping the law—are under a curse. For it is written, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them." All things. It's not a pick and choose like so many today want. (laughs) And, And we can't. We are unable. We cannot do it. So it could never come this way. And here's what he says in verse 15. He explains why the inheritance cannot be gained through the law. Because it brings wrath and reveals sin. For the law brings wrath. There it is. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. I know that's a little weird. We'll get there. It's a little awkward. Right, so the Jews of Jesus' and Paul's day, they they typically viewed the, the Mosaic law as one of their greatest blessings. We covered that in Romans 2. We covered that elsewhere. Like the law was something that they revered highly. They respected greatly. They lifted it up, even though they didn't necessarily obey it. So how can Paul say that the law brings wrath? In verse 15, it gives the answer implicitly. And it's important to note what Paul is not saying about the law. He is not saying that where there is no law, there is no transgression, or meaning that, that without the Mosaic law, there is no sin. That word sin, harmartia, means to miss the mark. It's an archery term, to miss the mark. And according to Romans 5.13, sin existed before the law. Right, so he's not saying that without the law, there was no sin. No, it existed long before, obviously with Adam and then Cain and, you know, it, it existed, all right? But the word he uses here is transgression. That's a key word right there, transgression. And it refers to presumptuous sin, to bis- disobey intentionally, right? It's willful trespassing. It's a technical term that is used to describe a violation and or... Uh, a violation of something that is written, of a command that's written or specified, right? It's no trespassing is clearly clearly posted. You know it. You watched the sign and you just walked right by it. On vacation, there were signs, you know, please stay off the dunes. And you know this uh, group next to us, they ripped the sign off, and like thirty minutes later, the beach beach patrol came. And, uh, you know, they got their beach justice. It was like a $450 fine. They ripped the sign off. They were walking all over the dunes. Like, it's willful trespassing. That's a transgression. You see it, you know it, and you are responsible for obeying it. Therefore, if you disobey it, there's greater punishment for it. When they ripped the sign away and walked over the dunes, there was a stricter punishment than if, there wasn't, uh, if it wasn't clearly posted and if it wasn't clearly known to stay off the dunes. There were signs everywhere. You couldn't have missed it. You're responsible if you disobey it. And there's a stricter punishment for it. So while all transgression is sin, not every sin is a transgression. Okay? I know that's a little confusing, but stick with me. God revealed his expectations of Israel in the law. Amen? He revealed his holiness. He revealed his Perfect standard for righteousness, and he revealed, therefore, what exactly he wanted from his people, what exactly they were to do through the law, therefore, when Israel disobeyed it because they possessed the law, their consequences for disobedience or disobedience or their punishment, it was more severe since they were aware of it. all have sinned, missed the mark but Israel specifically, through their disobedience, disobeyed the law. That's what Paul is trying to convey here. That's what he's trying to convey right here. In verse 16, it's the crux of the entire passage. He says this, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, we see that word offspring, and here it is. Don't laugh. I trust that you guys are mature enough. The, the word in the Greek is sperma. Okay, y'all did great. Sperma, and, and it literally means seed. It literally means seed, and it, and it refers typically to physical descendants. Physical descendants. Abraham's literal physical descendants. However, However, what Paul does in Romans 4, 11 and 12 that we saw last week, where we see that the same word is, is given a spiritual significance where he calls Abraham the father of all who believe. Do you remember that? Look, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. The father of all who believe. That's Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, so this offspring here has a isn't just a physical descendant it's not just a physical offspring or seed it is a, a spiritual reference that Paul is alluding to here and at the end of sixteen, we see the two groups that make up this spiritual seed to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the point is simple, that God is gracious and salvation is a gift of his grace. In God's grace, he makes promises, which we receive by what? Faith, y'all are on it. This salvation or promise is one from which both Jews and Gentiles benefit. And it's this grace through faith that unites believers. It's this grace through faith that unites the Jew and the Gentile. It's this grace through faith that unites me and you. Because you wouldn't like me on your own. And I wouldn't like you on my own. But praise God that he's united us through, by his grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. Amen. All right, so Abraham, the father of us all. And he follows up that claim with scriptural proof. Here he is pointing back to Genesis. And in this case, it's Genesis 17.5. It says, I've made you the father of many nations. And again, Genesis 17.5, one of those promised passages. The father of many nations. How? He didn't have a bunch of kids. No spiritual significance. Again, it's not pointing to this literal seed, this literal physical seed ancestry or lineage. Only justification by faith alone could make this a reality. Obedience to the law could never do that. Do we see that? Obedience to the law could never make you a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Circumcision could never make you a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Only God unifying the believer to Christ can do that, justifying them by his grace. Amen? Now, in the second half of verse 17, Paul, he briefly briefly analyzes the God in whom Abraham believed. So look with me. Abraham believed in the God who could do the impossible. All right, second part, in the presence of God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham believed in a God that could do the impossible. Is that the God that you believe in? Okay, I mean, y'all... Great. All right. The God who could do the impossible. Giving life to the dead. And here this is a reference to Sarah's dead womb. We see that in 18 through 20. 18 through 20. Like... He calls things into existence that do not exist. And this is the same thing from another angle. God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations, even though he didn't have a single kid. He didn't have a single descendant. And God said it. He promised it like it was already a reality. This is the God who could do the impossible. So Paul moves from describing the God in whom Abraham believed to describing Abraham's belief itself and this is where it's going to get fun for you and me. First, Abraham believed in he believed that God even the, even though the the situation seemed hopeless. Abraham believed God even though the situation seemed hopeless. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring b from a worldly perspective things seemed hopeless it seemed like there were no grounds for abraham's confidence but true faith is linked to what hope true faith is linked to hope a settled confidence in the promises of god right the the emphasis again is on abraham's and and sarah's Conviction that God would do what he had promised, even when all of the physical evidence pointed in another direction. Right, Because Abraham was not without God, he was not without hope. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself in the depths of my own despair and self-loathing. But if I'm with God, if you are with God, then you are not without hope. Right, so when the doctor says, man, that may look like cancer, not without hope. When your job says, or yeah, your, your job, your boss says, hey, we're going to have to let you go, we're downsizing, not without hope. So why do we allow the winds and the waves to toss us around? Because we're not anchored in the right thing. Our hope is in our job, our hope is in our health, our hope is in our money, our hope is in the wrong place. But Abraham, even though he he, he recognized everything, he understood that if he was with God, then he would never be without hope. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead was or were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore or by the seashore. Now the lost and dying world is by contrast without hope and without God in the world Ephesians 2:12 says. So Abraham he believed that God or he believed God even though the situation seemed hopeless. Second, Abraham's faith did not weaken or waver. He says this in verse 19, he did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Consider this. Abraham was 75 years old when God made the promise to him in Genesis uh, 12. 75 years old. Sarah was 65. 25 years later, they have Isaac. He's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. When, When God blesses them, when he fulfills the promise of a descendant hundred years old. Sarah was barren in Genesis 12. It wasn't a new development. She had been barren. Abraham weak, impotent, and Sarah barren. And here they are, despite everything else, despite the, the circumstances, they could look at them, acknowledge them. This isn't a blind faith. This isn't, this isn't something that's unbased. No, it, it has its foundation in the promise of God. So Abraham didn't ignore the evidence. Rather, he faced the facts. He faced the facts and took them fully into account. But they didn't cause his faith to weaken. Why not? Because his hope and his faith, they sprung from God's word of promise. So Paul concludes in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. So Abraham's faith remained steadfast even though he and his wife were nearly dead, even though they were impotent, even though she was barren. They, they looked at it, they knew it, they understood it, they didn't ignore it like so many of us try to do, like it's not a reality. They didn't go see a magician that prayed some words over them and gave them some false assurance. No, they rested their hope and their faith in the word of promise. third abraham gave glory to god no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of god but he grew strong in his faith as he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to god he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to god not to himself not to his finances or his health or his intelligence or anything else but as he gave glory to god and this point isn't made in the genesis narrative Right? We don't see this in Abraham's story. But what, what we see is that Paul is drawing this, this, uh, this implication from the story in general. He's looking at Abraham's story and seeing that he gave glory to God through what? Through his trust in God. Through his reliance on God as the God who keeps his promises, who is faithful. So when we not just sing it, but when we believe it, when we embrace it, we give glory to God. When we look at the situation, when we don't ignore the facts, when we head straight into the facts, into the reality, and say, praise God anyways. God, I trust you anyways. I know that you're faithful anyways. God, we are glorifying God, and we grow in faith. Unbelievers, in contrast, they exchange the glory of God for idols like we saw in Romans 1, 22 and 23. This is the difference. This is why we need to stop obeying or, or following the patterns of the world. There's, there's, life is not easy. It is hard. But do not follow the patterns of the world and turn to the idol of self or the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Don't turn to the idol of, of materialism or anything else Trust in God. All right, fourth, Abraham believed that God was able to fulfill his promises. It says in verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had what? Promised. True faith rests on God's ability, not yours. Right, and and what we see is that Paul isn't ignoring the reality because Abraham laughed in Abraham's story when God made those promises. Abraham chuckled. Do you remember that? And then even Sarah chuckled. What we see is that Abraham was not a perfect person. What we see is that he he was a man and Sarah was a woman just like you and I. Faith was not, it wasn't complete, it wasn't full. But as he he continued to trust, as he continued to believe in God, his faith grew and he was fully uh, persuaded or fully convinced that God was faithful and he would fulfill his promises. This is Paul. He, he's announcing that, that Abraham maintained a firm conviction in God's promise, and he acted on it. He had momentary doubts like you and I do. If you, if you don't, you are a liar. But he always overcame his doubts by his faith in God, in, in the God who, is, who had promised. Right? Like he overcame his doubts in the God who, might, who made the promise. He overcame his doubts with the word of promise, what God said to him, not what your favorite YouTube personality said to you, not what somebody spoke over you one time at Bandcamp, what God's word says. So that's why Paul concludes it, it's faith. It, it, it was faith that was credited to him as righteousness in verse 22. It, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And if you remember all the way back in chapter 4 verse 3, this is what started this section. This is what started this section. For what does the scripture say, Paul says in verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Now he's bookending this section with the same citation, the same citation. And what he does in 23 through 25, we're not going to blow this out of the water because This is the application of what he's saying with Abraham. And I think it's pretty straightforward, but chapter 5 and onward, we see greater application where he dives more in depth. But look, he says in verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead or Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, what he's doing is he's trying to, he's trying to make a parallel between Abraham's life and ours. I don't know if you know this. Hey, Christian, but we believe in a God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, Amen just like Abraham believed in the God who could raise Isaac from the dead if he went through with sacrificing him there on the altar. We read it in Hebrews. We saw it in Genesis a few weeks ago. Abraham believed in a God who could do the impossible, who could raise uh, people from the dead, and he believed that to the point where he was willing to sacrifice his only descendant, the promised descendant, or better yet, his only begotten son. Sound familiar? Christian, we believe... In the same God. And then in verse 25, we see perhaps a confessional statement, like an early Christian confession or creed, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the beautiful thing, right? This is what grounds us in historic Christianity. This is what connects us to our brothers and sisters of old, the continuity of faith in the one true God. Brothers and sisters, here is what I what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to see. That that Abraham, he he may not have believed that that Jesus would would die. Like it, it wasn't the, the exact same, right? Like it wasn't Jesus Christ lived and died. On the cross, was buried for three days, and rose again. I don't think that Abraham had all of this. He had a gospel, he he had a promise of a a redeemer, of a Messiah that we understand is Christ. But what Abraham did is what you and I do. We believe in the word of promise, what God has revealed about himself and his redemptive plan in the time that we have. God has revealed himself entirely and perfectly in scripture. He has revealed how to be saved, and it never says by works. Trust in his word of promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Y'all know it. These aren't suggestions. Suggestions. It's not a may be saved, will be saved. Believe in the Almighty, all powerful, life giving, womb restoring. God, who can do the impossible, who can raise Jesus from the dead, who can re- regenerate you, who could take you from dead in your trespasses and sins and give you new life in Christ, eternal life in Christ, making you a co-heir to the riches, to the inheritance that you did nothing for and that you could never earn a deserve through your works. Believe in that, God. Or be cursed. Like the law says, because that's the promise. All who rely on the works of the law are cursed. Two options. One leads to life and one leads to death. And as the the band comes back up, consider that before you leave here. Which path are you on? Which God are you trusting? Who or what are you trusting in? Are you a recipient of the promise? Did you receive it or did you achieve it? Father God, we...